Hello, my name is Margot Summers and welcome to Profits for Today. I'm going to be interviewing my friend Lillian here about Mary Magdalene. We plan to talk a little bit about the myth that she was a sex worker, talk about the positive role that the myth played in people's lives such as Lillian's, and also talk about who Mary Magdalene really was. Lillian, would you like to introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about what connection you have to all this, your thesis, all that good stuff? Sure, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Lillian. Uh, right now, I'm a first-year PhD student in the Religious Studies Department here at UD. I also did my master's degree here, during which time I wrote my master's thesis on Yay. Mary Magdalene. Yes. <laughs> um, my thesis was titled, Belittled Yet Beloved, The Influence of Mary Magdalene's Story on Catholic LGBTQ Identity. Um, and I was really driven to write this thesis because Mary Magdalene herself has played a very important role in my life as a queer Catholic. The story of her being a sex worker, um, that rumor that got started was a, really a big part of why she became important in my life, right? Because for queer Catholics, a lot of our lives are defined by a stigma of sexual sin. Um, that may or may not be true, right? A lot of queer Catholics live very chaste lives in accordance with the teachings of the church, and yet people still believe that they are sexual sinners. And the same goes for Mary Magdalene, right? She wasn't actually a sex worker, but her life right now in the minds of most contemporary people is really defined by this role of sexual sin. So yeah, that's kind of how, uh, how her life figures into mine here. Um, I was introduced to this devotion actually by my partner, who just kind of clued me into the fact that Mary Magdalene's sort of an unofficial patron saint for the Catholic queer community. So she became an important role in my life a couple of years back, and then I realized, I can write a master's thesis on this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <So> here we are. <laughs> oh, that's too good. Okay, so just a little bit of background on who Mary Magdalene was, um, and, you know, please, like, add in if I get Absolutely. some things wrong or you feel like, you know, I didn't give the full cover, but basically Mary Magdalene is a female figure in the Bible, mm -hmm. not to be confused with Mary, Jesus' mother, Correct. different Mary, <laughs> there are lots of Marys in the Bible, but basically Mary Magdalene was kind of like Jesus' right-hand man, she was with him a lot when he traveled along with the apostles, mm -hmm. she helped support him while he was traveling around and, you know, spreading God's word, yeah. and she was also the first one to see Jesus resurrected from the tomb, he appeared to her and she thought he was a gardener. Um, <laughs> That's true. <yes. laughs> and she was the one who told the other apostles, like, hey, Jesus is risen. Yeah. So that's really the most significant role of Mary Magdalene. She's also mentioned more in the Bible than any of the other apostles, which is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Outside of Mary, the mother of God, she is the woman who is named the most often across all four Gospels, which is really cool, by the way. Luke, in, in chapter 8, describes her as a woman from whom seven demons had gone out, but then in the same breath describes her as one of the women who helps fuel Jesus's campaign. She is described as a woman of means who helps to, to financially provide for him on his mission, um, along with his followers, which indicates, you know, she's, she's probably quite wealthy and of some kind of stature, which mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let's get into, like, what the origins are of these misconceptions of calling Mary Magdalene a sex worker. Absolutely. Um, like, where did that start? What's sure. the deal with that? All that good stuff. Yeah, so a big part of that arose with... Um, just some popular devotions that were beginning in the early church, but mostly starting in the early Middle Ages, of seeing Mary Magdalene, you know, as this woman from whom seven demons had gone out, as I mentioned. Mark mentions this too, I believe in chapter five, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so there's this, this understanding that she is a woman from whom demons have been cast out. And with that, there's an assumption there's probably some sin involved because, you know, demons are associated with sin. Mm -hmm. Now, they're also associated with mental illness, so that might have been a part yeah. of it. But 
for the most part, you know, we're, we're thinking demons sin, yeah? And then um, Pope Gregory the Great came along. Oh, and yeah. he was seeing all of these popular devotions to Mary as this, this, uh, this ideal forgiven sinner. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, I'm also seeing this trend of this real growing sense of personal guilt over personal sin and then seeing a lot of people getting bogged down in the sense of guilt. And he goes, well, all right, here is an image of a woman from whom seven demons have been cast out, seven sins have been Mm -hmm. cast out, and she was still beloved. Not only that, but he says in homily 25, um, he introduces Mary Magdalene as a sinner in the city. And also says her many sins have been forgiven her because she loved much. And in 33, uh, he says, there I love this passage. This woman whom Luke calls a sinner, John names Mary. I believe that she is the same Mary of whom Mark says seven demons have been cast out. How should we interpret the seven demons except as the totality of vices? Since all time is comprehended in seven days, we correctly take the number seven to signify totality. Mary had seven demons since she was filled with the totality of vices. But then the book goes on to explain that if, the, if this woman, who is consumed with a totality of vice, she's the peak of all sinners, filled with demons, haunted by a life of sin, if she can be forgiven to the point where she was blessed with the gift of seeing Christ first after his resurrection, before all of his faithful apostles, before even Peter, who has been named the head of the church, then if she could be blessed this much, then every person can have that faith and that hope in the saving, merciful love of God. Anyone can be forgiven if she, who was the greatest of sinners, could be forgiven. So that was kind of where this rumor got started. He conflates her image with the image of the woman with the alabaster jar. That was that that woman whom Luke calls a sinner. Um, that's the woman with the alabaster jar, the, the, uh, the prostitute, the sex worker, who comes and cries on the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her tears. This is a beautiful image of, of forgiveness in itself, too, because this woman who has done bodily sin is now using her body as the symbol of repentance and the avenue for forgiveness. Um, and Pope Gregory sees that and says, that is how every person can be forgiven. And if that's this same woman, the same woman who has the totality of vice, then, then even she is able to throw herself on the feet of Christ and beg for mercy, and it is given. So the rumor was, was honestly... If, if it wasn't started as a way of seeking forgiveness, it was perpetuated um, in this spirit of, of seeking mercy, of this consolation in the hope of forgiveness and the hope of God's love. Um, so it was definitely well-intentioned. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how it got started, or at least uh-huh. got, got popularized, if that makes sense. Yeah, and then I read that after this, I think people kind of made that connection mm-hmm. in a different way than he intended it to be. Mm-hmm. And then... Mary is now depicted being very similar to that woman who was crying at Jesus' yeah, feet. absolutely. Especially in modern depictions of Mary Magdalene. Think like, I don't know, the Da Vinci Code or, mm-hmm. or Jesus Christ Superstar. Mary Magdalene <laughs> is this very sexual image depicted as the wife of Christ or the secret lover of Christ or, or someone seducing him, pulling him away from his godly mission. But... But that's definitely not what the original myth was. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was it was not meant to, I mean sex workers at the time, prostitutes had had a very negative connotation. And I I don't use the word prostitute lightly, right? But uh-huh. it holds with it that stigma. And it was very much a stigmatized identity that that Pope Gregory was was putting on her, that these people were putting on her, not just not just the Pope, I want to mm-hmm. be clear about that. It wasn't just his fault. And it was meant well, because it was saying that even the most stigmatized of professions can be redeemed, right? 
And then, you know, nowadays it's, uh, yes, we're, we're taking this stigma and we're just leaning into it. And we're not really focusing on the redemption anymore. We're not focusing on the love or the forgiveness or the joy. We're just focusing on setting her up as a feminist icon in some yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just a very different message. Yeah, absolutely. It's so fun watching you talk about this because you're just like glowing as you talk about it. Aww. And you're like so intelligent and I just, I'm Thank thoroughly you. enjoying this. The Mary Magdalene means a lot to me. Her story is so important. Right? It is. It's really inspiring <laughs> and it's interesting to like hear about how misunderstood yeah. she was. But yeah. also like, I mean, let's talk a little bit about who Mary Magdalene really was because sure. she wasn't a sex worker. And I think no. that it's inspiring to hear about what came from those yeah. misconceptions and such. Mm-hmm. But like, who really was she? I mean, she did a lot after Jesus' death. She, right. like, continued to spread the good news. Yeah, and so she did. if you want to expand a little bit on sure, what Mary sure. Magdalene did. Yeah, so, like, there's we don't know a lot for sure. Yeah. Um, a lot of it's just kind of this, this mythos that's been perpetuated. And there are some things that we do know for sure, right? Like what Luke said, that she was one of the people funding Jesus' mission, so we can assume that she was a woman of some means, right? Absolutely. Um, and then also from a lot of gospel contemporary texts, we get these images of her as as almost the perfect disciple. She's she's extraordinarily intelligent in these other non-canonical gospels or non-canonical books. She is usually depicted as smarter than all the rest of the apostles combined, <laughs> which is just a fun little fact. Snaps for that. <laughs> <laughs> but also in a lot of these, she's described as going out and teaching. And this is uh, pretty well accepted at this point that... Mary Magdalene, along with other disciples, including other women disciples, went out and spread the gospel message. And in some texts, she's referred to as a deaconess in the Greek, which I'm afraid I don't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> That's all right. But, um, but yeah, so the, the, the apostles are described as bishops and or priests, and she is described as a deaconess going out and spreading this message on her own. She's preaching. She's mm-hmm. teaching. And then... Like, we get these stories of her going to, to Gaul, modern-day France. I think it's modern-day uh, Marseille? Mm-hmm. Marseille. Yeah, Marseille. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There are all kinds of beautiful frescoes in Italy and in France depicting her converting pagans and spreading this message to people who just hadn't heard it yet. And this is so cool, right? And then she gets this message from, from Peter, head of the church, saying that women shouldn't teach, women shouldn't preach the gospel. And so she comes back. And... There isn't a lot of strong historical evidence, but the mythos is so strong about it, and there are so many corroborating stories that it's pretty safe to assume that she was going out and teaching, and then she came back in obedience to the head of the church and spent her time instead supporting the other apostles. That's most of what we know about the actual historical figure. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, really it's little, so but... hard. It was so long yeah, ago, and you right. know, yeah, and there are so many. I mean, like with a lot of the. A lot of the apostles, not a lot is actually known about their lives, mm-hmm. um, but it's especially hard for someone like this, who is not part of the strong central male narrative, and who is really almost almost a side figure by the Middle Ages within the story, uh, and is, is simultaneously, as, as all these stories are coming out, she is being co-opted into this image of the Beatificatrix, the holy or blessed sinner. Yes. Um, yeah. Catherine Ludwig Jansen has a beautiful book on this called The Making of the Magdalene. She talks a lot about the devotional cult around Mary Magdalene that springs up over the course of the Middle Ages and really flourishes in the high Middle Ages. The, this devotion to Mary Magdalene as the blessed sinner, um, which kind of stemmed from that, those homilies from Pope Gregory Absolutely. the Great. But then also expanded into this, this beautiful, multi-layered, multi-faceted image 
of a woman who was so steeped in sin and yet also so steeped in love and redemption and forgiveness. And it's really beautiful. But yeah, so that kind of overshadows a lot of the historical aspects of her. Um, it makes it a little bit hard to tease those out and find them. So what did your research look like for this thesis? Obviously, you know a lot about Mary Magdalene, but <laughs> I know I did not give you a heads up on this no, question, okay. but I just, it kind of struck yeah. me like, what did your research look like this? Since sure. there are so many kind of different narratives that you had Absolutely. to weave through. Yeah. So I will be completely honest, that book that I just shouted out, mm-hmm. um, Jansen's The Making of the Magdalene, that was my jumping off point because my first year in the master's program, I my first semester, I had this great class with Dr. Lori Elo, and she had us read that book, and that was when I made this connection to this devotion that I and some of my queer friends had had for a long time to Mary Magdalene as this image of, of holy and centered simultaneously, even if I didn't have the words Beata Picatrix. Uh-huh. Um, I was like, aha, this is exactly <laughs> what I'm looking for. Yes. <laughs> so then from there, I did a lot of research into what did it look like in the early days? Let's look at, let's look at the Gospels, of course, but then let's also look at the other works that were written around the same time as the Gospels, right? Because even though they weren't accepted into the biblical canon, that doesn't make them completely wrong and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're it doesn't mean that they're false it doesn't mean they're outside of orthodoxy necessarily well some of them are being gnostic texts Uh um but even there there's a kernel of truth right so we look at those and we see what are what are the patterns that emerge from there and the patterns emerge as mary magdalene as a woman who was very close to christ she was a woman who who had means but also who was extraordinarily intelligent and extraordinarily faithful because in a lot of these texts, it's not just intelligence, it's openness to God, right? There's a wisdom of the Holy Spirit um, that's very visible in these stories about her. And so I'm looking through these texts like the Gospel of Mary, the Pista Sophia, the Gospel of Philip, the Nagamati Corpus, um, and just seeing this, this image start to take shape of Mary Magdalene as this woman who was incredibly close to Christ in this beautiful, very, very intimate platonic friendship. Um, kind of in an, in an Aristotelian sense, this friendship as looking for the ideal for the other and, and trying to build them up as much as possible and bring others around them into this relationship with God. Um, and it's just really beautiful, right? Um, yeah. And then from there, I'm like, okay, well, let's look at Jansen's work and, and see what she's doing and look out from her, because she mainly focuses on the high Middle Ages. What happened b- before that? What's the interim? How did we get from this image of wildly intelligent, faithful woman to the sinner of all sinners. How we get there? And so that was where I started looking at Gregory the Great. Um, I started looking at early Middle Ages. There are all of these beautiful sermons and poems and plays that speak of the Magdalene's tears. And it really connects her to that woman with the alabaster jar and, and follows the story of her tears from wiping the feet of Jesus to weeping over his tomb and and weeping and waiting for him to return and then weeping tears of joy when he appears to her and says wait don't touch me which implies that she ran to embrace him um yeah and that they had a friendship so close that that was just normal that was a that was an instinctive reaction for her was to run to him and to try and embrace him because you know here was here was her closest friend and her god alive and before her again (laughs) there's so much emotion there um and then from there, you know, I was also doing a lot of research into things like the, the state of the LGBTQ plus community in the church and what does it look like to have an unofficial patron saint and things like that. So there's a lot tangential to it, but that was the main flow of my research into Mary Magdalene. Absolutely. I have to say one of my favorite theories that I talked to you about 
is that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had more than just a platonic relationship. Yeah. And we mm-hmm. talked a little bit about where that could have come from mm-hmm. and also why it maybe it wasn't platonic <laughs> or maybe it was platonic. Yeah, like yeah. it seems to make more sense that it was mm-hmm. platonic and how beautiful it is that like a man and a woman can have a friendship yeah. that is this deep mm-hmm. without being in a relationship. And we Absolutely. talked about how interesting it is that people automatically assume that since Jesus was so close to a woman that he was like sexually active with her and things like that so I would love to talk a little bit more about that with you and just kind of what your ideas were what you kind of told me about Mm -hmm. before and things such as that yeah so the last bit of my research into Mary Magdalene for the thesis was looking into modern depictions Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of modern depictions are like I was saying before very heavily sexualized um, and deal a lot with her romantic or sexual relationship with Christ and I was like, well, this doesn't come from nowhere, right? So let's let's look into some origins for that. Um, and part of it is just this concept of her being a sexual sinner whose story is so closely entwined with Christ's and the honor that she is afforded in being one of the first to see him risen um, and that she followed him even like to his death and to the tomb. Um, there are a lot of people who believe that she was one of the people who actually laid him in the tomb physically, um, and was there with him along with his mother until the very, very end. But also in my um, gospel contemporary text research, um, I mentioned the Gospel of Philip already. Yes. And in the Gospel of Philip, she is described as exchanging a kiss with Jesus. And that's interesting, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there's a really cool thing about this text, right? This is a Gnostic text. And a Gnostic text in particular, when it talks about this kind of a kiss that was exchanged, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was exchanged between Jesus and and Mary um, in the sense of a kiss of knowledge. It's, it's a kiss of transference of pure gnosis, pure wisdom. Um, and in this sense, it's not indicative of any kind of romantic or sexual relationship, it's simply meant to indicate that she is able to receive in a in the fullest sense the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and, and true knowledge, right? In a way that none of the other apostles or disciples are able to because they all have some kind of hang-up that's getting in the way. And so they aren't as receptive and open to Christ. And that openness, that receptivity, is symbolized with an exchange of a kiss. Absolutely. Yes, it makes complete sense. And yeah. it's, I just love hearing you say that again, because I know we already <laughs> talked about it. But just hearing you talk about it is just so interesting to me, especially since first I was reading it and I was like, oh my goodness, like maybe they do have a non-platonic relationship. And then mm-hmm. after talking to you, it was kind of a whirlwind for me sure. of like learning about the truth behind yeah. this. And like, again, this is all part of the, the mythos around her, of course. right? Like, none of this is, is technically canonical within the Catholic tradition, but none of it also, well, perhaps the, maybe the sense that, that they were in a sexual relationship might be outside the bounds of what's considered orthodox. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And that's why I think we should talk about how they were not yeah. having a sexual relationship. Right, right. But this concept of her being able to receive pure wisdom, or at least be perfectly open to and receptive to Christ, even if you don't want to use that Gnostic language, mm-hmm. that's perfectly within the bounds of, of what's considered Orthodox Catholic tradition. So there's at least that. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we're busting two myths today. Um, <laughs> okay, so I guess kind of changing what we're talking about a little bit. Sure. Um, I would just love to talk a little bit more about 
what impact this had on you. I know you kind of talked about it a little yeah. bit in the beginning, but like what personal impact this had on you and maybe your fellow friends and Absolutely. such that have looked into it. I know you said your partner yeah. was also yeah. pretty inspired. Yeah, so um, actually the process of writing the thesis was very impactful for me. And I talk about this in my conclusion. This The process of studying the story of Mary Magdalene beyond just, you know, there's this connection between the, the story of Mary Magdalene, that bifurcation of her identity and the, the bifurcation of identity experienced by queer Catholics between this is a this is who I am, being Catholic, and also this is, a, it, it's inextricable from who I am. And also being queer is inextricable from who I am. Yeah. And I can't, like, cut one of these off in favor of the other, right? And there's this sort of, there's this, this tension and this yearning that comes from that, that yearning for God and that yearning for God's peace um, that really resonates with the story of Mary Magdalene as the Beatificatrix, that, that devotional cult around that. Um, so that was like where I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I'm, I'm researching this and I'm doing more and more working through Mary Magdalene's story from those beginning gospel verses up to modern day depictions um, in, in pop culture, in plays, in books, in music, um, like Lady Gaga's Bloody Mary, phenomenal <laughs> of Mary Magdalene, not necessarily orthodox, <laughs> um, but all of these different depictions, and just seeing what emerges in this arc, that was a, that was a journey for me, and seeing all the different ways that, that her story in these different aspects um, affected how I was also perceiving myself. And I hadn't intended to do this, but I, I concluded with, well, Mary Magdalene is a perfect unofficial patron saint for the, for the Catholic queer community because of this multiplicity of expression, because of all of these different ways that she is able to relate to God in, in the pain, in the darkness, in the, the, the feeling of hopelessness and having this external stigma of, of sexual sin imposed upon her for nothing she actually did but because of misconceptions. And yet, even in that, being able to say, I know that God not only loves me, but it will get better um, in the next life, potentially in this life, but also that nothing can, can shake me from this truth of who I am. That kind of hope and that kind of joy at being so blessed that she was the first or among the first to see Christ in his, his resurrected and fully realized form, that kind of joy, that kind of hope really speaks to the yearning and the the darkness that a lot of queer Catholics face. Um, Many queer Catholics don't feel accepted by the church, and that's just a very sad reality. We can say that they are welcome, but the fact is there isn't a lot of action around that. Absolutely. Um, At least not universally, right? Because the church is big, and there are a lot of expressions, and not all of them reach everybody. Yeah. Um, And that's hard. And so a lot of people are living in that that darkness of not being sure if they're welcome or feeling actively unwelcome. And her hope touches that. And her joy touches that. It's it's truly a a supernatural hope um, in the sense of, of the of the cardinal virtues that it's not just, oh, I have faith that it will get better, but I know, I, I trust, and I have that reassurance in the spirit. And so like, it, it affected the way I perceive myself. It affected the way that I, I perceive the church. Um, and there's, there's so much more hope and reassurance and joy in not only God's mercy and love, because we all have confidence in God's mercy and love, of course. but also in... God's ability to affect 
the reality of the world and the reality of the church and being able to see the way that the church is slowly inch by inch moving into being um, a more loving space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely have um, a few queer friends who I... I cannot wait to tell about this, and I can't wait to recommend this podcast to them because I definitely think that, like, you know, we're a church that represents the perfect God, but we're run yeah. by imperfect people, it's and so it's so hard to, like, be in a church where just people's way of treating people yeah. unfairly is, yeah. like, not what God wants, but mm-hmm. they make you feel unwelcome in the church, and that, like, it pains me. Yeah. It pains me to know. So do you, was there a point in your life that you felt like you kind of fell away from God because of this? No, actually, I'm no very way. blessed in that in that um, God's love has always been something very present to me. And yeah. I can thank my mother for that. Oh, um, my mom really hammered that home for me at a very young age. Oh, like, no matter good. what I do, God will always love me. And I that has saved me on many occasions. <laughs> <laughs> there have been times where I have I've wondered um, whether whether me being queer means that I can be a part of the Catholic Church. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I've ever wondered whether God loves me. Yes, um, totally. Others don't have that same assurance. Um, and so I would hope that, that Mary Magdalene's story, in its multifaceted sense, right, would help to speak to that. I would also hope that the church militants on earth would try and speak to that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and would be a witness to, to God's unending and unconditional love. Um, so that's, that's maybe not something that we talk about enough, that God's love is unconditional. Um, yeah, yeah. Wow, <laughs> you're so inspiring to talk to. <laughs> like, all the things you say are just beautiful. <laughs> Well, you tell I was a campus minister? <laughs> yeah, so I, I hear it in you. I totally do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I suppose this is all the questions I have for you. Is there anything else that you think is important that we know about Mary Magdalene or queer identity in the church or anything sure. of that sort? Yeah, um, the main thing to know about Mary Magdalene is that you don't know everything. And go out and look at it. Go out and look at her story. Look at artistic depictions of her and how they've changed over the years. Um look at the non-canonical gospels look at what it says in the canonical gospel text and just see what speaks to you because i can say a lot of things Uh but the holy spirit works in very mysterious ways go and see what her story is saying to you and as far as the queer community in the church goes they are people and they are searching for that connection um and also they are a beautiful addition to the tapestry of christianity um, they have so much to offer in terms of how they perceive the world, how they perceive God, how they perceive other human beings. Um, it's a different worldview. It really is. And there's, there's a different kind of intimacy that comes from being rejected all your life. Mm-hmm. There's an intimacy with God that's formed that's just different. And it's beautiful, but you need to be willing to listen to it. Um, so that would just be my, my encouragement is to, to listen to their stories and listen to how they perceive God, listen to how they perceive the world and see what that says to you. See what that says, see what the Holy Spirit can say through that to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, everyone should read Lillian's thesis. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit of just 
you know, as a final send-off, can you repeat the title one more time and say sure. where it's available for <laughs> yeah. anyone who wants to look into it? Uh, the title is Belittled Yet Beloved, The Influence of Mary Magdalene's Story in Catholic LGBTQ Identity. Um, you can find it on the University of Dayton's library website. There is at least a digital copy there, and I think there may be a physical copy coming soon. Um, there should also be a physical copy in the uh, Religious Studies Department main room where they have all their feces kept so beautiful oh my goodness all right <laughs> thank well thank you so much for having me on Margo. yes I appreciate oh, it. thank you for coming it's been beautiful talking to you it's been beautiful talking to you too. <laughs> all right and this has been profits for today yay